Hello, and welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast designed to address the concerns of black men and provide a forum for them to learn, feel empowered, and be the men they are called to be. Welcome back. In part two, we continue the discussion of the components needed for a unified Black Lives Matter movement as we touch upon Christianity, police harassment, public school funding, and reparations. With that said, let's start the show. And I, I need to jump back in because I think this is critical. And I want to give this example, and, and I'm, I'm interested to hear what Saladin has to say about this. Let me give an example about a concern here. There is a, I'm, I'm going to be nice to them and not mention their name. There is a major nonprofit organization that deals with psychology, hint. And I'm on their working group and their email thread. And everybody there was talking, all these psychologists was talking about all the work that needs to be done, social justice and equity, right? I wrote an email that stated, that's fine. But have you looked at your own board? Who's controlling the narrative and talking about this? Do they look like people like me or do they look like people like you? And have you addressed your own institutional racism within your own organizations? Can I tell you, as soon as I wrote that email, a number of them wrote, please remove me from this thread. That was day one. By the second day, the entire association had shut down the entire thread. That was day two. There was supposed to be an equity conference. They canceled the equity conference. That was day three. And everyone that was black started chatting and saying, this is not a coincidence. And this is part of the thing. And I'm interested in what Sadie has to say, but this seems to be part of the thing, which is rah, 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 we're for you until we start, until it becomes encroaching on their narrative and their power within these different organizations, even when they say they're about social justice. And I always got a side eye for nonprofit organizations on that. Brother, you couldn't be more more right and on point, you know, and I mean, I, I work in higher ed and, and people think, oh, it's nothing but a pack of liberals and progressives. And it couldn't be further from the truth. It is the most slow-moving, conservative uh, set of folk you'd ever want. Maybe not politically and dispositionally, but in terms of, you know, making change, you know, um, not an easy place to make change. I will say that, you know, the Eagleton Institute of Politics, where I work, you know, we had this conversation like a few days ago. And the statement that we put out was very much about introspection. Sorry for what happened, Black Lives Matter. All the right language was there. But the key thing that that statement included was, but now it's time for the Eagleton Institute to look at us, look at ourselves, and what are we going to do to make this place a place that's uh, not only safe, but progressive and um, forward thinking and acting with respect to black people who come on our campus, who come into the Institute, who we teach and and educate and so forth. I have not heard. Happy to sit, not happy to say, but I've not heard the same from my Department of Political Science about that kind of introspection. You know, we put out a statement, but it was not one that um, 
was focused on an inward looking element. And I'm right. hopeful that that dialogue and then that action will happen. Um, but that's a critical point because, you know, it's easy to say Black Lives Matter and then put a corporate logo on it or an institutional logo on it. But what are you going to do where you sit? Right. You know, are you going to hire more tenured faculty? Are you going to put more tenured faculty in the pipeline? Are you going to promote more? Are you going to uh, encourage, uh, you know, students who you wouldn't necessarily in the past have uh, thought of as honors students to move into the honors program? Would you recruit in different neighborhoods and so forth? There's a whole systemic set of actions that have to be addressed, as well as um, the fact that many people are going to be made uncomfortable. And I think that's to the point. You know, why do people log off these emails and, you know, I don't want to hear it because it makes them uncomfortable. Well, we, you know, yeah. we've been uncomfortable for a very long time, too. You know, you know, I, I couldn't agree more, brother. It, it takes that self-reflection. And that's really where that that critical mass has to matter. Right. When right. people are not just yes, they're protesting, they're expressing themselves. But when they go home and they look at where they work and what they do. They examine their behavior and examine the institution's behavior. And they said, you know, this has to change here, not over there, not in Minneapolis, right here where I work. Yeah, every industry just about mm -hmm. will have to go through this um, no matter where you work. We had a um, moment like that at my job at Rising Tide Capital. Um, we're a nonprofit organization. Our founder is a, she's an Ethiopian woman and uh, her co-founder is a white man. And we actually had a day where we had to bring on our entrepreneurs because it, it's a teaching program and we we had an open forum and we had it we had both sides talk about we had a white man talk about his shame of white privilege we had um people talk about the pain that they're in suffering so these conversations have to go on in every industry in order to bring about that change that we need and one of the things that was interesting and i wanted to bring up that you know we'll talk about how people understanding. I was watching CBS Sunday morning and they were talking about Black, uh, Tulsa and Black Wall Street and how they kept it silent for over 80 something years. And so of course, first time people even heard about Tulsa was in uh, that HBO show, Dead Watch, and how they talked about Tulsa and that was the beginning of Black Wall Street. And then people were like, what, what are they talking about? I never even heard of this. So. There's a lot, lot of, we have to bring a lot of knowledge and education to the, I think the younger people, so they know this is not something that was just happening when during their formative years, we've been going through this to help bridge the gap. And we have to speak out more in our jobs or boards that we're on, any organizations that we are a part of that doesn't view um, our lives as ma that matter. So that's just that one thing. So. Chris, I want to go back to you because you made a statement. It wasn't scathing, but it was a, it was on point statement. Uh, I think it was a week ago now, and you talked about you called out our white white Christian brothers that support policies over the past wrongs. And so, you know, we always hear that Sunday is one of the most uh, eleven o'clock is the most segregated hour. So, how do you think they'll go about reconciling their issues? Since in their congregations, you know they're not really as familiar with the plight of African-Americans. So how do, what, what do you think is gonna to have to be done in that front? 
Well, look, I, I'm not, I don't mind an all white church, an all black church, an interracial church. The, the fact is, I don't, I don't care if you meet for an hour or two on Sunday. Are you Christ like outside of the church? And if you're Christ like outside of the church, then you're going to treat all people, regardless of skin color, equally. Uh, and a pastor of an all white church, the leadership of an all white church, they still should have some degree of fellowship with people of Christians of color. Maybe it's within their denomination, or even if it's not within their denomination, they need to go outside and make sure they have fellowship with Christians of color. And then listen, listen to the Christians of color. Because if they hear stories from the Christians about what they're going through, then that can wake them up. Because look, whether they're Christian or not, with some white people is racism, and some white people, it's ignorance. They, they, white people are the most segregated group in the country. That's been proven. Like 85% of them, I think, grow up in predominantly or all white neighborhoods. So they, some of them are just ignorant to what black people go through on a daily basis. You know, so some of them just need to hear and understand the stories. And this is why I encourage black men who, are doing well in society, who are considered successes, um, they need to share their stories of police harassment or worse. You know, I know I know a lot of brothers who have gone through things like that with the cops who don't share. It. I, I, I think there's, I don't know if it's shame, it's embarrassment, whatever, but they don't share them with whites publicly. I think that needs to change because whites typically think, oh, it's just blacks who have done crimes or, you know, or, for, or, or thugs, as they'll call them, who encounter these situations. They need to know that the black uh, executive has had police harassment and things like that. So I think that's important. And the blacks in those spaces need to share that with the whites. And, and just from a Christian standpoint, Keith, whites need to understand in terms of in the body of Christ, it's supposed to be a family. There are untold numbers of scriptures that talk about how the body of Christ is made up of people of all nations and ethnicities and tongues. Okay. So if a family, the body of Christ, that family is made up of blacks and whites and Asians, Hispanics, Native Americans, whatever the race may be. And if you really understand that we're family, then you're not going to allow these situations that go on in the black community. You're not going to be indifferent to those. If your black Christian brother is in pain or in fear because of what's going on in society, you're not going to be indifferent to it. You're not going to brush it off, man, get over it. Oh, I don't believe you. If you really understand we're family and feel it, then you're going to grieve with your brother and you're going to do what you can do to help him in that situation, change the, the circumstances that create that feeling of fear or pain or what have you in his life. That until the body of Christ in America gets to that point, then it's not going to be united. And again, from a spiritual standpoint, Jesus said in John 17, he prayed that the his followers in the future would be one, would be united 
like he and the father are united. He said, when, when you're united like that, that's when the world will recognize that you have sent me, Jesus Christ. The, the white church is being kicked out of the mainstream of society. The white evangelicals, that's almost synonymous now with racist or even white supremacists in mainstream people's views, even in the views of black Christians who may agree with them theologically. And so they need to recognize that they better get this thing right. They better partner with their black brothers and sisters and Christians of other colors to get this thing right, or they will be pushed pretty quickly to the periphery of American society. So they you love them to do it for spiritual reasons and out of love and out of a changed heart. But if they can't do it for that, they need to recognize they need to do it or they will be pushed underground in American society. Great, great. Anything that any like to add on that? Any of the brothers? I think it's what Christian said is so true. You know, the, the book of, I'm thinking about the book of Romans and what, what was the problem with the Romans? The, the attitude was pride, um, a love of violence and militarism, you know, ego, um, you know, the feeling of superiority to other peoples. So when Paul's writing the, the book of Romans, it's all about how Christ is antithetical to all of those values. What we need is people who are reading the book of Romans and substitute Americans and think about what are the values that we have that need to be uh, made Christ-like, the pride, the militarism, the sense of egocentrism, the sense that we're better than other peoples. You know, um, we can't think th those words apply to other people. We have to think that, you know, we're getting a message for ourselves as, as spiritual folk, right? That this is, you know, a finger pointed at us and not the Romans of old. And so, you know, I know Chris is, um, you know, just he's, you know, what he said was beautiful and, and so important uh, and practical as well. But I just want people who are believers of whatever faith to reflect on their belief and reflect on the message for them in the context specifically of this country right now and what we're going through. And that it's not just uh, an allusion to some um, historic theological past. Mm, great, great. So before we get to our last question, there, I just want to just touch upon a question that just came up because we didn't touch upon that much. But big brothers and big sisters of Hudson and Union County, they the question was, what do we tell our children about the issues of the day? So if we can quickly, what what are some of the issues that we need to make sure our children know as they start to start to grow up and they'll they'll inherit this movement? So what should they what should we be telling them? Anyone can chime in, yeah. I start by saying, you know, how old are they first, right? You know, because there's certain things you would share with a five-year-old that, or a 13 or 15-year-old that you wouldn't share with a five-year-old. But, you know, let's say someone's in middle school or, you know, uh, high school, you're going to have a, a talk about dealing with the police. I've already had that talk. I've had, and it's an ongoing talk. It's not the talk, it's the talks. Um, so that's, that, that's one. Um, I think it's important for them to know that, you know, they have to affirm their dignity uh, all the time in the face of a society uh, that oftentimes doesn't doesn't acknowledge it. And so part of it is just telling them you love them and letting them know they're loved and beautiful in a society that doesn't appreciate or value their beauty um, and, and letting them know that, you know, part of what it means to be an adult in this country is that there's going to be struggle. You're inheriting a struggle, but you're also inheriting a beautiful legacy. 
and you are part of a family and a community that loves you and is here for you. But I think, you know, there's no sense in hiding things from them because, you know, I, there are some occasions when people feel like, you know, I've encountered them in, in school and they come to college and they, they have no sense of what the black struggle has been historically. There's no, really no sense in doing that. In fact, you're probably doing a detriment, but I think you can share with them in a way that lets them know they're part of a struggle. There's no way around it. You know, our Jewish brothers and sisters have, have taught their, their children that they're part of a historical struggle. Our children are part of a historical struggle. But you know what? They're also a part of a, of a great history and they're also a part of a community that loves them and, and here to support them. And I love and support you and you are beautiful and valued. Those have to be reiterated in the face of a world that constantly rejects their person. Amani. So with Big Brothers Big Sisters, they, they have on their mentoring hat. So I'm going to take it from the mentor side. There's two parts to this. There is the mentor who, who is black talking to their mentee who is black. But then there is their mentor that is white talking to their mentee that is black. Black, okay. If you are a Good mentor, point. you know, if you're a mentor, a black mentor to a black mentee, it is irresponsible of us to not tell the truth. Yes, you do have to watch the age, right? I get that. We do have to watch the age. But we cannot put our kids under um, uh, under a rock. I think there was a thread on Twitter one time that was talking about, when's the first time you had your in interaction with a police officer or saw something? My first one was nine. And so, therefore, we have to remember that in our community, many of our young black males and young black, you know, women have already been exposed in some way or another to a traumatic issue dealing with law enforcement. That's ugly truth, but that's reality. And so I think we need to provide the truth just articulated properly. But here's what I would say if the mentor is white and the mentee is black. Number one, acknowledge the reality. Number two, listen, understand, and respect the feelings. Ask more questions than give responses. And before you give a response, look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, where is your response driven from? Is it driven from your life experiences because if it is then it's driven from a place where you have you may not have any experiences with law enforcement any experiences with systemic racism so you have to be careful of that you have to be careful not to look down i call it the poor little black boy poor little black girl syndrome mm -hmm. you have to be careful not to do that instead this is what i recommend listen empathize Respect the place, the space, and recognize where your limitations is of knowledge and experience and be the conduit that helps bring that young person to those areas. Bring them to a protest. Let them listen in to say, hey, we're going to listen into this session, this town hall being done by this young group of black men and black women doing this. And, and you just be there and help facilitate getting them to those experiences. 
But I say that because, and I'm not one to bite my tongue and I'm not going to here. In the field of mentoring sometimes, white saviorism is very prevalent, okay? I've seen it. And God makes sure that in this time that white mentors don't take on this white saviorism mentality when it comes to their black mentees. No, what you need to do is understand that, sure, go out to the protest, Black Lives Matter, hold up the signs, honk the horns, do that, acknowledge, respect, great. But once it comes to really dealing with these systemic things and articulating, watching George Floyd get killed, watching what's happening to a Chris Cooper, watching what's happening to a Ahmaud Avery, recognize that there are some things that when they, if a kid says, they're doing this because I'm black. You can't jump in and say, well, you'll be fine. No, because that could be any of us, right? If I'm, look, I had the conversation with my own son. Let's be real. George Floyd could be any of us. Let's be real. My son is 15, right? I can't hide nothing, right? And so, and so therefore, the mentor can't go and say that. That's the worst thing in the world you say. You'll be fine. Things will be better. Look, we can have all this. Even when my son goes off to college in three years, you damn right, I don't care what policies are changed. You damn right, I'm saying having the same conversation that my mother had with me and my father had with me. And so to me, it is important that the mentor understand what they can do, how they can be a support, but also understand the where they are limited at in experiences and being able to articulate what that young mentee may go through. Okay, great. This has been a tremendous conversation. So we're gonna go into the last question because uh, I know that's going to be one that we that we wanted to tackle from the beginning. So we'll, Chris, we'll start with you. We've had a lot to, to unpack in this past hour, but from your viewpoint, what are the components, and you can list probably three, uh, well, one, do you feel a national movement is necessary? And if you do, what are the three things that we need to make sure are in place to to get to that point? I, I think this is already a national movement. I really do. I think, I mean, you, how many, this is what, the 13th day of protest? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's already a national movement. The key now is to take it beyond that and take it to the next level. And honestly, I mean, I've never, you know, I'm going to say a, what, what many people think is a bad word, but I have not been one to really promote the idea of reparations before, uh, in large point, because I thought it was unrealistic, like it's just not going to happen. But when I look at the climate today, I, I've seen governors, I've seen whites in authority say, admit that this is not just about George Floyd. This is not just about uh, police brutality. This is about systemic oppression. Even Roger Goodell, when we talked about earlier, his statement referenced systemic oppression. I, I firmly believe now that what's needed is reparations. And it, they did talk a little bit about it as the Democratic candidates, you know, were getting their place for usually it was fringe ones. 
but at least the, the reparations did come up a little more in mainstream conversation. I think now the climate is stronger than it's ever been for reparations. And I think when you look at the educational disparities, I mean, 23, El Monte referenced it earlier, white, predominantly white districts get $23 billion more per year than predominantly districts of color. That needs to change. So how you change that one way, I, I think they need to stop tying school, public school funding to taxes. Because obviously the poor neighborhoods where the kids need the education the most are get, they're getting inferior educations because the taxes are much lower. So that needs to change. The wealth gap, you know, whites, white households are worth 10 times more than black households. That is directly tied to systemic racism of the past, period. It's not because they've worked harder. It's not because they've, they're more intelligent. It is because they've been given government handouts. And so that need that needs to be understood so that you know you that puts reparations more in context. Uh, we need to understand that this justice system that we're fighting against, the first police departments in the South were slave patrols. The police department was started to keep blacks in line. That's where the tension comes from between black the black community and the police department because that's why police departments were started, at least in the Southern part of the United States. So I really, look, I, obviously it's a complicated issue, but I think reparations, which has been given to other groups, the Jews are still getting reparations for the Holocaust, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And Native Americans got it, the Japanese Americans got it. And so, that is the only way. If we're now all acknowledging it is systemic oppression that has been here from day one, that's the problem. Then we have the only way to solve it is to repair that. And if we go and repair it economically, educationally, and judicially, that's the that then we can move past it. And that tension that always exists between blacks. And America, because no matter how accommodating you are as an African-American, there's no matter how successful you are as an African-American, there is always that tension between you and America. That you have to teach your kids how to behave if they get stopped by a cop. That you have to tell your kids they're not teaching you all the history in school. So let me let's read these books. There's always, America's an adversary to us in a lot of ways. The only way to get rid of that tension is to repair it from the beginning at the root. And that's the only way to get rid of the white guilt. That's mm. it. They're going to continue to feel guilty unless we really address the root cause. If we keep putting Band-Aids on it, they're going to continue to feel guilty. And we're going to continue to feel half citizens. And so the only way to really address it is with reparations. Saladin? You know, Chris is, is right, you know, and I think if ever there was a moment where people are considering every kind of solution to our problems, this is the moment. 
part of it is because of COVID and now part of it is because of this, you know, universal basic income is something that nobody thought would ever even be remotely discussed, but it's clearly something that people are, are taking seriously. You know, every movement that we've had historically has been pushed back. You know, Lincoln talked about reparations. He just happened to think that the Civil War was going to resolve the question. He said, every drop of Negro blood shed by the lash has to be paid for by a drop of white blood shed by the sword. Every sunken dollar that should have gone to paying a Negro has been gone into the war. So his plan was that after the war, with these amendments, we would resolve this issue for once and for all. But then we had the Klan, we had white terrorism, and then we had Jim Crow, great society. People said, well, Lyndon Johnson tried all of that. It didn't work. You know, he tried it for about two years, and then we had Vietnam. You know, we've made fits and starts as a nation to address this, but Chris is so right. We've never really addressed the big issue, which is how to resolve the historic crime about that was directed towards people and turn them into cattle for hundreds of years and never resolve you know, the, the subsequent inhumanity that was attendant to that initial crime. We never as a nation had a sustained moment of doing that. And so that's clearly you know, the solution. And I will just add, while we're working towards that and addressing those historic wrongs and wrongs and pushing for reparations, what you're seeing in Minneapolis with you know, the police maybe being defunded, uh, certain uh, policies and chokeholds out, out, outlawed. The local movements are so critical, you know, whether it's in Piscataway or Princeton, New Jersey, or Sacramento, it doesn't matter where you are, the individual community push is so critical. So we have to, you know, think macro, but also think local and micro where we are. Those movements in that Minneapolis um, ruling with regard to the police and regard to chokeholds, but also with regard to how uh, the police are funded, all that is part and parcel of this big issue. But I think Chris has hit it on the head. And if we don't have the courage to do that, then this idea of American exceptionalism will always be tainted, will always be false, will always be, in effect, bogus, will always be just something we throw out there to make ourselves feel good, to pat on the, you know, like the Romans, the patting on the, on the chest. It won't mean anything. Uh, we have to wash ourselves, wash our Republican robe white, is how Lincoln put it. We've never done that as a nation. We're still pursuing that. It has to be done. Almani, we'll end with you. So on that, let's let's work backwards. I'm going to start by saying it's about reparations. Poverty has been the greatest, greatest generator of profit. Black poverty has been the greatest generator of profit for America. And here's what I mean by that. Enslavement led to revenue generation and the building of this country. A lot of times when we talk about reparations, we stop simply at enslavement. Well, let's remember the 13th Amendment and the reincarceration, the reenslavement of African Americans and how that generated revenue. Okay, let's go to the Great Migration. You go up, you move up, and now you have Jim Crow and you have redlining, you know, later on. Guess what? That disrupts and our policies to cut black people off from access to generating revenue, thus creating communities of poverty. Well, you have poverty, you have crime. You have crime, you have incarceration. 
revenue off of that. Or poverty means you have somebody working at a minimum wage job for somebody making billion dollars. Hello, Amazon, right? And so now you have these systems in place to whereas intentional poverty is being a profit generator for America. And so the thing that we got to look at and even think about Tulsa, the Tulsa massacre and the taking of land, because that's oftentimes what's lost is how many black communities got their lands lost. And so once you start looking at all of these things in terms of lost money, lost revenue, look at banks and charging higher interest rates, right, to African-Americans. This is all lost dollars that are coming in. So to me, when you talk about reparations, all of those things have to be included. Now, the next thing, because I want to get to that part where you talked about how do you make this a national movement? I think there's two things you need to do. Chris is on about reparations and uh, about that, and you have to quantify that. But I think it's important from the local, state, and federal level to understand it's about politicians. We call them policy makers. They are not policy makers. They are policy implementers. They don't make policy. Their special interest groups make the policy and they implement what their special interest groups do. Why is this important? Because if this Black Lives Matter movement is to be effective, I cannot believe I'm saying this, but they need to think like the NR freaking A. We need to have lobbyists. We cannot, no disrespect to the church, but the church cannot be our last bastion of where lobbyism for the issues that impact us happen. No, we need offices on K Street. We need to be the ones looking at politicians that we fundraise for, that we put in the office and then are beholden to the policies. A strong national Black Lives Matter movement is those connected by general mission, but are strategically broken up to deal with the specific issues because if not you try to approach this monolithically all hell is going to break loose there needs to be a black lives matter on education black lives matter on economics black lives matter on schools black lives matter on zoning right local state federal but we need to get into the lobbyism aspect mm -hmm. because that's the only way if the politicians do not feel as though they're beholden to you, they're going to give you lip service, right? And so that's the way we push for policy because the last part I want to say about reparations, and I saw the thing that Bob Johnson said, and he talked about maybe $13 trillion. I don't want to put a number on it. I don't know what the number is, but I know this. Here's what I'm more interested in. Not so much how much money you're going to get back to me. I want to know what policies you're going to create that will generate that revenue for me. Tell me the policies of dismantling redlining and what is that gonna do for property values within the black community? Tell me about dismantling the disparity in funding in our educational systems. And what will that do to increase the number of African-Americans going off to college, getting full rides? You know, tell me those things. Tell me what, what tell me how you're gonna dismantle gentrification and how you're pushing out African-Americans. So there's a couple of ways to generate whatever those trillions of dollars. That's fine, you wanna give me money, okay, that's nice, right? And I'm not saying no, 
but I'm more interested into the dismantling of the policies that have disrupted revenue, wealth, and access to dollars flowing into the black community as opposed to what's this invisible barrier that's kept up and so then it's backing out from the black community. And so to me, if you're a part of any movement, you need to be a lobbyist right now. You need to be saying to yourself, who are you gonna run for mayor? Who are you gonna run for city council? Who are you backing for Senate? And I'm gonna say this about the Democrats. That Democrat machine, the primary aspect gotta go because it's killing young, great, potential candidates that got that voice that represents the people and they stifle them and they suppress them during the primary. And that's why we end up with the same representatives that say they feel our pain, but they do not feel our pain. But ultimately we need lobbyism and our work and our message can't stop with a protest, can't stop with a march and sure as heck can't stop by being represented in a church. We need to be on K Street, L Street. We need to be in every congressional office to do the dirty work that nobody sees. Elmani, quickly, I, I agree. I think if, if there's reparations, it needs to be primarily systemic and dealing with policies and things like that. I, I, right. Look, if there's a small stimulus check or something like that, fine, but it shouldn't all be in a stimulus check at all. It should right. be in these long-term policies right and legislation. So I'm with you on that. But will it take a Nash, some one person, two, three people to lead the conversation? So some of the things that you guys mentioned actually get implemented. See, I, I, I think I'll jump in very quickly. I'm very concerned if we do the one, two, three, that's that black leader myth. We need a black leader because what ends up happening is if you, if something happens to that black leader, everything collapses, right? In my opinion, that's what I'm saying. I think collectively we can say Black Lives Matter. But here's what I'm more interested in. What's the spirit of Black Lives Matter amongst those of us that are African-American educators pushing for a lobby to do to take on policies there? You have African-Americans that are bankers and in the financial sector that know the finances and the economics right. Let them do what they need to do collectively. We have black organizations, not just fraternities, sororities, but you got the Black Lawyers Association, Black Journalists Association, all that. That already seen. My opinion is don't make it one leader. Instead, say, okay, we who sit in this part of the sector, we will take on this and we'll lobby and dismantle this part. Because if you wrap this all into a bow, then it all goes down, which is why, no disrespect, but let's look at it. Let's be honest. It's 2020. We're still quoting Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. No disrespect to them. Right. But we're still there. Mm, right. That's a problem. Okay. Anything to add on that, brothers? You know, when's the last time you heard a candidate say, this is my Africa policy? This is my policy about the Caribbean. There's so many elements of who we are and what we care about that no one has to even pay any attention to. When's the last time someone said to you, well, you know, this is what we're gonna do with Africa because they know black voters care about it, et cetera. So it's domestic, it's international. I think 
Elmani is right that people want our votes, they have to earn them and they have to come to us with what they're going to do for us rather than just as an afterthought. So I just want to echo that sentiment um, because so many things aren't even raised. You know, yeah. after apartheid, quote unquote, went went down and, and it was dissolved. You know, I haven't heard anybody say anything about it. Like Africa doesn't exist. Do, do black people not care about Africa or the Caribbean anymore? I don't mm. just, right? right. So you know, well, well, we do, but and we have issues here, but we care. But we don't have the power to make other people care, and that's part of what I think Elmani is is referencing right yeah. here. Great, great, Chris. Last thing, I would just say that some of our black leaders that have the ear of Joe Biden, they need to be saying some of this stuff to him. You heard his attitude. I got y'all vote, right? If you, you're not black, if you're not vote for me, what's he going to do to earn the black vote? Seriously, this is what we're talking about, holding him accountable. Give it, what are we getting from you to get the black vote? We have to hold people accountable to, you know, not just be happy to be at the table with them, but what are you going to do for us? So I think that's very important. Mm, great. Well, this has been a wonderful, wonderful roundtable. And it's only the beginning. We have, we, we've said a lot, of, a lot of things tonight. And hopefully you will, uh, you guys listening will take the messages that have been given and to really move forward with that. One thing you, I really want you to, to do right away is look at your, where your money's going, because they talked about in the protests, we are fund, we, and I even myself, no, we're funding corporations that are getting billions, trillions of money from the prison economic situation. And we didn't even touch upon that. So you need to look at where your money's going. If it's going to a place that is um, getting money from prisons, you need to reevaluate where your money's going. Um, I hope you enjoyed tonight on Black Men Speak. Tell people about this program, support this program, because we are, our Black men are out there. They're intelligent. They have insight. And we are, along with our Black sisters, we're going to make the changes that we need to make to not just matter, but to live in this country. Have a good night. Wow. That wraps up our first show with Saladin Ambar, Chris Broussard, and Elmani Viney about the components needed for a National Black Lives Matter movement. So what are our next steps? We need lobbyists to look into the policies that are disrupting the flow of revenue, wealth, and access into our communities. And we need to rely on groups in the different sectors like our black educators, black bankers, and black journalists, etc., to push those agendas that benefit us instead of relying on a couple of heroes to save us. It's time to get to work. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can do three things for me. You can subscribe, share, or leave a comment. Black Men Speak is going to provide more topics about black men and the things that they're doing in our communities to make a difference. So it's quote time. And the quote comes from El Makar Cabral. Learn from life. Learn from our people. Learn from books. Learn from our experience of others. Never stop learning. This is Keith Dent from Black Men Speak. Peace. Peace.